Hi, I'm Dan Wilton, the CEO of First Mining Gold. First Mining Gold is a project developer with a portfolio of assets and focused on advancing our Spring Pole project, which is a 5 million ounce resource uh, project that's at uh, pre-feasibility, moving into feasibility study level, one of the largest undeveloped open pit gold projects in North America, uh, and moving through some very critical uh, mild development milestones here over the course of the next two years. A very catalyst-rich future for First Mining Gold. It's a catalyst-rich future indeed, but it's also been a confusing past few months, and I, I, that's why I want to catch up with you. We, we, we had a sort of 15 minutes or so in November when you're at one-to-one, -one, which is nice to sort of uh, see you live. Um, yeah. And I haven't seen you for, since July before that. But look, it is a confusing environment at the moment. Gold price, nice, we like it. May it continue that it's slow ascent. But uh, equities, not so much. You guys have come off a lot since we last spoke. Um, there's some, I, I don't know, is there some uncertainty in the market um, that is affecting you? Is it the geopolitical situation? Is it where you are in the old Lassonde curve? Um, or are people not getting the narrative? What do you, what do you think is going on? Uh, listen, I think uh, our share price performance has been you know, largely in line with the development sector uh, in the gold space. Uh, in fact, as we kind of went through our compensation committee reviews at the end of the year, we were actually at the top quartile of developers for share price performance. Now, mis you know, misery loves company uh, and we'll never mistake uh, relative performance for great performance, but uh, I think that's a part of it, is that in general, all of the developers have kind of been sold off. And for us, um, you know, we just kind of put our heads down, we're well-funded and we keep moving forward on the fundamental value of the projects that we have. And so that's been, that's been I think, uh, where, where we've been a little bit hamstrung is a lot of really good work going on, technical work that just kind of getting wrapped up as we kick off our feasibility study and a big focus on getting our environmental assessment work to the point where, you know, this 10,000 page environmental assessment document is around the corner from the time when we should be able to drop that in with the regulators as a draft to kind of kickstart that process. Right, okay, so I know you're busy, your company's always busy and you've got the cash to be able to be busy and hopefully being busy, being effective, right? So there's this kind of couple of audiences I need to help um, with today. Your existing shareholders very kindly sent in a lot of um, quite interesting questions about where you're at with different components um, that you're working through in, in, with regards to the feasibility study, et cetera, and hopefully, you know, maybe getting yourself in a position where you're, you know, FID, right? Um, but the, the other audience is the new audience looking in at this kind of crazy market, this, pre, this pressure metal market, not quite knowing who to believe, where to look, et cetera. I look at your numbers. I look at your uh, pre-feasibility study. There's some pretty big and exciting numbers in there. Maybe, actually, why don't you remind people what they look like? Because I want to talk to you about growth. Sure, yeah. So the pre-feasibility study, which we put out last year, uh, scoped a project that had an average annual production of 335,000 ounces a year for the first kind of core nine years of the mine life. That would put it as a top five producing mine in Canada in any given year. So this is a big, globally significant deposit. Um, you know, resources, uh, 4.6 million ounces M&I in silver and gold and another 20 million ounces in silver. Um, reserves, declared reserves with the, uh, with the PFS of 3.8 million ounces reserve. So this is a project that is big enough to be meaningful to the biggest gold companies in the world. Very attractive um, 
uh, NPV, after-tax NPV at $1,600 gold, just shy of a billion dollars US, pre-tax 1.5. So, uh, and uh, upfront capital, 718 million US. Right, okay. So, so, so right, and also uh, IRR at 1,600 um, gold, uh, just under 30%, right? So, just under so, 30%. So pre pre pretty nice, right? But is it, the, is it the CapEx figure that's perhaps scaring people? And, I'm, and, I, and if, it is, if you think it is, then we need to kind of address it and say, well, look, think of it in the context of, of, of whatever, how you want to explain it away. Yeah. But first of all, do you think that is putting, putting people off? Maybe not the funders, but the market. I think it's one of the things that people have concern about because they've seen developers of large projects move forward and you know end up with, you get it to the, to the final investment decision stage. And you've got this big funding overhang. Well, the reality is, I think the way that we look at it is there's an enormous amount of risk that we take out of this business in the next two years, just doing what we have the team and the capital to do, which is take it through feasibility and take it through the environmental assessment process. So our, our project, particularly Springpole, has some you know unique element of disbelievers because the deposit sits under the bay of the lake and you know that's all obviously dealt with in our engineering plans i think you know it's all dealt with through our uh, through our environmental plans and it's it's something that you know has been done a number of times in canada so yeah i think from that perspective uh, there is still a portion of the population that is going to be wait and see until you actually have your permit Right. Okay. And, you know that's fine. So that, that's but fine. I think that's, that's, that's true. Parents really, really important part of this. You need to you need to yeah. convince them that you're you, well, you're going to get them or that you've got them, and that's fine. Yeah. So, um, and I, like I say, it's been done before. This is not, this is not yeah. new technology we're dealing with. Let's come to the bit where which was really kind of um, sorts of meant from the boys. That is, how do you get funded? Who's going to fund you? You've been down at BMO. That's where the big boys go and meet. Who have you been talking to? What's the feedback been from them? Well, I think, you know, our, our calendar at BMO was probably two thirds catching up with, you know, larger producers in the industry. Um, and I would say from that side, a more robust discussion than we've seen in a long time. And I think, you know, considering the last BMO was virtual, the one before that was right on the cusp of the pandemic. I think that bigger companies are now very seriously looking at their development pipelines and recognizing that if you're looking five years out, there's kind of not much that fits into that next stage of development. And we've got one of the bigger projects in a tier one jurisdiction. So, uh, and, you know, big and robust and, and able to, to grow, which is another point we'll come to. Uh, our other investors there, or other meeting were with, with investors. And I think, you know, we have a kind of small core group of institutional investors. Um, and that's, uh, you know, but I certainly appreciate all of their support, but it's a pretty, small group. I think we're still largely institutionally unheld. But as we as we demonstrate you know, that these catalysts are coming over the next two years, you know, we get into the environmental assessment process and get kind of line of sight on the end of that process, then it becomes a little bit more investable for the mainstream. So lots of people starting to look because it's big and it's robust and we have amazing leverage to a higher gold price. And if you are a believer in a higher gold price for for Springpole, Every hundred dollars is another hundred and fifty million dollars of after-tax NPV, two hundred and fifty million dollars of pre-tax NPV. So, you know that is big leverage to where we are. You know, sitting today, three hundred dollars uh, in gold price higher than when we did the study a couple of years or, or last year. Right. But, okay. But um, what, what I'm trying, what I'm trying to get at is, what 
was the feedback from the institutional, sorry, the industry guys. I said, what are they yeah. looking? They can see your numbers and go, okay, 335,000 answers a year. Yes, please. I'll, I'll have a piece of that with the margins that you, you're talking about, with the trends you're talking about. Yeah, that sounds yep. interesting to me. Are they concerned about the CapEx number at all? I, I, if, if, they, if they're not, maybe the market shouldn't be. So, you know, is that, is that a concern? Is it, have you engineered it right? Yeah, I, I, listen, I think everyone is talking about cost inflation. And, uh, you know, for the smaller market cap of the companies that we've been talking to, where a billion would be, a, you know, a larger bite, I think they will be more predisposed to wait to see how it evolves and get fresh numbers from engineering. Um, and from the feasibility study process, which we've kicked off, for the larger gold companies in the world that are generating, you know, billions of dollars of free cash flow every year, um, this is kind of a chip shot. And so for us, you know, again, one of the things we're probably most concerned about is you have someone who recognizes that and decides to act on it before everyone is ready. Um, uh, you know, uh, that's where I think if there's one thing that kind of keeps me up at night these days, when we're trading at 0.06 times our net asset value, um, you know, that's part of it. But I, I think it really does open up that discussion, which is far more fruitful around strategic partnerships and around, you know, maybe strategic investor parties. Well, let, well, let's have that conversation because there's no way you want something, someone coming in here and giving you a 25, 30% premium at today's price. Okay. That would just suck. Uh, you know, you, cause you've, you've done a lot of, a lot of heavy lifting and there's a lot of upside to be had, but at today's prices, that doesn't work for you. So one, what do you, how do you, how do you make yourself defensible yet attractive at the same time? What are the things that you have to expedite to get into the, this feasibility study so that the market can value you or appreciate you differently from what they are now? You're 210 million market cap today. It's, it's, of which about 120 million of that value is cash in our portfolio assets. Not, yeah. even, not even the main assets are moving R forward. Right. Um, so listen, uh, spent 20 years as a corporate finance professional, and you know, five years as a private equity investor. Have helped a lot of companies at this stage, and I will tell you, the only thing that ever saves the day in this stage is making sure that you have more than one party who's up to speed on the project and, and aware um, so that if someone decides to move proactively, then you have other people and, you know, you can at least achieve some modicum of a market price because of competition. But until then, I think there's still, um, given where we are, um, a, a number of people who would be interested to have exposure but I don't think necessarily want to move on the whole thing today. And I'll tell you one of the main reasons is we're just at the very early stages of packaging and starting to be able to get active on the regional exploration. And that's one of the biggest things that I think has changed people's perceptions. And it's, you know, it's not a surprise because uh, we've been working on this for a year, but that combined with sort of the uh, success and outcome with Great Bear um, has given people a real um, sense of renewed interest in this Bertucci Greenstone belt, which we, you know, slowly and quietly picked up the dominant position in. 
uh, over the course of the last year. And it was, you know, it wasn't easy. It was 10 deals with, you know, other junior companies and prospectors to kind of piece together the land package. And there's still lots of interesting stuff happening outside of us, but this, this belt and that district scale exploration is the thing that the bigger companies need to kind of check the box on top of, uh, you know, 5 million ounce equivalent users. Right. Okay. I want to kind of compartmentalize this because in my head, I kind of want to walk away and go, I can put some money on this thing, right? So with the with the flag uh, spring pole um, project, the feasibility study is being worked on now. When does that actually get delivered? What's it cost? How long is it going to take? Feasibility, um, our goal is to have all of the engineering done this year. Um, whether that manifests itself in a study immediately after, um, the timing of the study to a degree gets a little bit set by the timing of the environmental assessment process. Right. Because What's if you're going to go through financing, yeah. if we put it out now or put it out at the end of this year, you probably have to do a, a study update, you know, six to nine months later, not the end of the world. So we're, we're kind of weighing that, uh, weighing that alternative. Um, uh, and the feasibility or the, uh, the environmental assessment, as I said, we're, we're rounding the corner on finishing, you know, the draft document which we will then submit to regulators and to our communities, uh, just really just to have the first complete snapshot with all of the technical data behind it so people can understand exactly what we're gonna wanna do. And we get real comments and feedback that we can incorporate before we submit a final. So that's what our team who spent six and a half years taking the Hard Rock project from scoping study to construction permits, same process they went through with the draft, and they found it very helpful because you incorporate all of that feedback upfront before you know you're formally in to the you know the final approval process. And we still need to get there's a, there's a lot of parts of very important feedback, particularly from our indigenous communities that we really need to get around traditional knowledge and traditional land use and. Um, you know, I think that's some very important work that uh, that uh, some of our communities are moving forward right now. And so, you know, obviously, we want to incorporate that, but it's getting all of the ministries paying attention and doing the work on the technical and the fundamentals, um, just so you know we can address any of those concerns moving forward. But what that means is that by the end of the year, like we're going to know if there are showstoppers in that process. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things you really like about this process is it, it does, you know, it's not, it's not just a black box binary process. It's all, you know, uh, open and transparent and everyone will be able to see everything that's there. But it, it means that we're gonna have a lot of catalysts along the way, not just waiting for a binary decision at the end. Right, so, so what are the things you're measuring that could be showstoppers or, or not? But I'm more interested in the, yeah, okay, First, First Nations issues, one, gotta be number one. Well, I mean, when we talk about uh, issues with our indigenous communities, I don't see it as issues. It's, it's that we need to advance the discussions with our communities around how we align our interests, right? And there's a lot of avenues for alignment of interest around this project, you know, not just um, employment and contracting opportunities and all those kind of base things. There's a lot of other significant potential investment leveraging the infrastructure of the project, be that roads. So a road up to, up to the community of Cat Lake has been one of the things that community has been looking for for a long time. 
uh, we've been helping with the study of that road as, as part of our engineering process. Uh, renewable power opportunities, which we've scoped out. Um, we're building a big transmission line. There's no reason why power can't go both ways on that transmission line. So we're starting to collect more data and have some scoping studies. But those are things that I think could be great partnership projects with our communities. Um, and, you know, we still need to go through the, the discussions with our communities about, you know, really, once they see the plan, what's important. How do we mitigate any potential uh, any potential impacts? Um, and hopefully, from our perspective, how do we uh, how do we work together moving forward? Right. Okay. So that's that. And and as we go along that process, uh, there are going to be a number of milestones and agreements that we're going to be able to hopefully you know come to agreement on and announce over the course of the next couple of years, um, just to define how we're moving forward. So you know we're 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 very very much looking forward to that that engagement and consultation as we go through this. Right, and then obviously engineering. Is it, re is it re-engineering, I think you described it as earlier. Is that because anything fundamental is changing or that you're looking to expand the the expand um, the, the, the scope of what you're doing or just improve the efficiencies? I mean, what, what exactly is the re-engineering of, of this? So there's, there's not all that much re-engineering, but it was uh, over the course of the last year, we've done some optimization and trade-off studies. And one of the biggest ones that came out of that was um, we think a much better in longer term environmental solution where we concentrate the sulfur in the process anyway. But if we can keep all of that concentrated sulfur in a separate tailing stream, you can manage it far better over the life of the mine by keeping it subaqueous so it doesn't you know, have the potential to generate acid. With a sulfide open pit ore body, it's always something that you have to deal with. Um, so a lot of the, the early stages of feasibility is around the engineering of the environmental, the kind of core environmental aspects of it, which uh, we've done, as I say, we've done at pre-feasibility level. And so this is really finalizing some data collection now, but that's, we're going to have the data set at feasibility level here shortly. So that's, that's been a part of it. Uh, mine plan is largely going to stay the same. Um, you know, it's the ore body. You remember kind of what it looks like. It's a big blob and there's kind of one way that it wants to be mined. But we're looking at other things like how do we uh, reduce or, you know, potentially eliminate diesel usage at the site? So what's the opportunity for electric uh, electric assist haul trucks um, and things of that nature? Just, you know, that have far reaching impacts beyond just, I think, risk mitigation of oil price, which is something that's obviously topical today, but also, you know, the carbon footprint, how are we engineering the best project that we can environmentally? So let's trade off studies like that that are going on. But the core core part of the process, largely what we had what we had scoped before, just taking it to a more detailed process of engineering. Okay, so coming come back to the original base of the question, which was I, I'm trying to understand the timing for all of this. I can understand why yeah. the market gets bored with projects at certain stages because there's, it's kind of a lot of admin being done, stuff that you need to do, you need to do it the right way, you need to improve efficiencies, you're spending money, but there's nothing meaningful moving forward. It's just a question of you working out how you actually extract, in your case, you know, gold efficiently. Um, uh -huh. So can you give the markets, I know you said it's difficult, but can you give a range in terms of, are we talking this year, we're we talking next year? I mean. What, what, what's the time? Yeah, so we, you know, we we uh, we talk about this all, all the time. Um, 
Submitting the environmental assessment document, our goal is uh, to have that draft ready for everyone to look at, you know, probably early in Q2. Um, once we submit that, we should expect to receive comments back, you know, depending on the ministry that we're getting them back from, you know, between three and six months. And then it's depending what those comments are, that's where there's a little bit of a question as to how much more work you need to do in changing project scope going back to, you know, probably some feasibility level engineering if there are major changes. But a, a big part of the environmental assessment is just letting everyone understand what trade-off work you have done and, you know, how you how and why you've made the decisions you have around the project. So um, what all that means is, or, you know, our goal is in uh, the beginning of next year, um, again, depending on, on how long it takes to incorporate the, any comments that we would have. But near the beginning of next year, we can submit that final environmental assessment document that has far more defined timeframes on it. And if everyone has reviewed a draft and we've incorporated a bunch of those concerns, it should move, we think, reasonably smoothly through that final process, which is about a 12-month process. So that would leave us with environmental assessments you know, uh, end of 2023, beginning of 2024. Now, is there possibility for slippage on those timeframes? Yes, it's a regulatory process. So we wouldn't be the first people that that would happen to. But I think we we mitigate a bunch of that risk through the the draft process that we're going through. Okay, understood. So that the okay, that's that's the kind of potential time frame. So that's important for yeah. people to know. They they because it's a big project. The upside is is, is huge. That's good, but you're kind of at the at the admin phase of that. So let's talk about some of this blue sky. Let's talk about some of the the either whether it be are you going to do sorry you, you don't, I mean this is a huge project. You don't need to do any more expansion drilling here, do you? Are you, are you going to focus on exploration? Yeah, no, no, I don't have to do any expansion drilling. The the ore body itself, where it is, is uh, is well defined. Yeah, you know, one hundred eighty thousand meters into it, and it's a very continuous yeah. ore body. So, um, you know, we kind of understand where it is and what's at the what's at the edges. So all the work that we're doing now, some of the, the drilling that we're doing now is, is in support of feasibility. So it's geotechnical drilling, it's waste rock characterization, hydrogeology, right. and uh, the, the footings of the copper dams predominantly. So uh, moving, into, uh, moving into the rest of the year, you know, we've now kind of got our footprint on this district. Um, and uh, we brought on a new VP exploration in October, James Maxwell, who is an outstanding guy. Yep. Um, guy. And I think we are very, very much, um, you know, taking our geologic understanding, not just of Spring Pole, but sort of how that then translates into the rest of the district to a, to a whole new level. But as James has quite rightly pointed out, regional scale exploration, you can waste a lot of money if you don't go about it in a in a sensible and systematic way. And so that starts with a big regional geophysical program, which, you know, we're pretty excited to get to. Um, we have drill permits on on a handful of sites uh, in our in our mineral tenure. Some of the ones that we'd optioned into had permits. Um, so it's just kind of prioritizing those targets. But you really want to have the geophysics in place so you can um, you know, so you can really understand and and more effectively go and target. And the rest of this year is going to be a lot of boots on the ground, you know, hammers and samples geology to really work up this district. But that is where I think at the end of, you know, a year or two, 
we're able then to present to, you know, other potential partners down the track. I think a really interesting advanced stage exploration pipeline in a greenstone belt that's seen, you know, a very small fraction of the exploration work that the Red Lake camp is, but has all of that kind of prospective. Okay, so you're going to continue the 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 model that you've uh, employed with um, uh, Otaco and Big Rich. Um, you would like to find, get projects to, to a, a either advanced exploration stage and then have a conversation with companies like that to go and get them to spend more money in the ground and then take a piece of that. You take, we're taking royalties or a bit of equity. Is that the plan? Yeah, no, I, we, I don't think you do that with the stuff in the Bertucci, right? Okay. The value of that is everything that you find. The value of it is its proximity to what we aspire to have as a permitted 30,000 ton per day mill within, you know, 20 kilometers. So this is essentially, you know, defining the size of the prize for, you know, a generation or two of mining potential in the district. Um, some of which you find things that are higher grade than that just goes into earlier mill feed. Yeah, there's a lot you need to, to sort out, but this traditionally has been a high grade gold camp, right? Spring pole is quite an anomaly in terms of the type of deposit it is. But, uh, you know, one of the projects that we're, uh, we're earning into just to the north of spring pole, the 20,000 meters drilled into it um, uh, by Placer Dome in the 90s, um, well-defined, very high grade structure. Um, and hasn't seen a drill hole below 250 meters, which anyone who's uh, is a student of uh, of Red Lake geology knows that you know the real mines get found quite a bit deeper than that. So, but surface expressions of you know ounce plus material. No, but, so, but, how, but how do you get the balance, Dan? How do you get the balance between the district develop, develop, developing a district? Is a huge expense and time and allocation. So, bring, bringing par bringing partners in to do that, or working with other people to do that, and get them to share the cost of that and the balance sheet is, is is one option for you. You've got the mill. You, you, well, you you know, the, hopefully, um, the ability to kind of fill the mill with other other people's ore and do um, tolling agreements. Fantastic. I'm trying to I'm trying to get a sense of whilst you're kind of advancing spring pole along. You could develop the district and all the kind of blue sky, you know, that, that, that you, you hope is there. That there's kind of almost layers of growth stories in here where you can either monetize some, some of the short term. You've got, you've got obviously, you know, you, you say you've got cash, obviously. You've got equities in, um, uh, you know, with treasury. Um, you know, you've got the, the, the agreements with, um, Oteca and Big Ridge. I can sort of see. I can sort of see how you're starting to do those layering of different types of value creation and cash generative uh, creation opportunities for your shareholders. But w w have you kind of got a sort of plan of you know um, near term to medium term to long term in terms of how you develop the district, or is it a case of well, let's just go. And do a few rock samples or surface samples, and and we'll 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 kind of plan it as we go along. I mean, how how do you map that out? Well, I think it's it's how you kind of systematically uh, understand the opportunity and screen and target it. Perfect. Right? And um, you're not going to necessarily go and and drill all of your targets right at once. Um, you kind of have to go through the process of working those targets up. But one of the other things that's amazing that we have with Springpool and with some of the other projects that we've, that we've picked up that have some kind of more advanced work on them is as you bring that whole data set into a modern era, you're going to have a bunch of 
analog to be able to sort of sort with and sort through. So you're going to know what the signature of high-grade gold looks like in the geophysics. You're going to know what the signature of these big, you know, porphyries look like in, in the geophysics. So I think it gives you a real advantage to that, but that working up the pipeline is more of a um, time intensive than dollar intensive process until you get to the point of drilling it. And then I think you can have a different discussion once you, you know, have some drill success and say we either discover another spring pool or you discover you know, something that's great bear-esque, or you discover something that's Red Lake Mine-esque, all of which are kind of the targets that we have in this camp. Um, I think the moment that you demonstrate that 5 million ounces equivalent is your starting point and not your end point, and that you are going to have a generation of exploration opportunity around you, um, with, you know, a couple of years down the track, permitted milling capacity, that's about five times the current milling capacity in the entire Red Lake camp. Like, I think that really does change the perspective from larger potential. Make, make, it, make it more real for me, Dan. Make it more real for me, because that, that's a kind of nice generic approach to any mining operation, right? I, I want to talk about you and what you're going to do. you got some yeah. cash. So how much cash have you got? How much is, what's the mixture of cash and equities? Yeah, about $30 million of cash, right. and then call it $90 million on the balance of our, the current value of the balance of our portfolio. Brilliant. So on, with the $30 million, what's the optimal way to spend that, you've got to obviously get the feasibility done. That's going to cost what? Yep. Feasibility with a bunch of the of the feasibility work that we were doing, you know, will be call it uh, somewhere in the five to ten range. So by the time it's all done, no yep. problem. Okay, all good. So the 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 optimal way to spend the balance of that, obviously, a little bit of GNR going on, GNA going on, but. What what are you doing in terms of districts can suck up a lot of money if you don't come at them the right yeah. way? Yeah, they're a liability in a, in, a, in, a, in a way, right? So, have you got targets today that you're going after, or is it a case with this early geophysics stage where you you've you've got to go through that process? It is a time intensive process, not a cost intensive process, and there's no kind of shortcutting that. Because I'm, try I'm trying to say, how do you create some near term? blue sky value in the minds of yeah. the market you know and, yeah, and what's, yeah. what, so, what's the conversations that you're having about delivering that so the other important part that we're missing is uh, and i think the most important part is advancing on the environmental assessment and work with our community right and so that that is i think the real priority and the major major de-risking here so that advances you know over the and, and is you know well budgeted over the course of the next couple of years as we go through there uh, and in terms of the rest of it no we we'd have five uh, permitted kind of drill targets that we could get to we would like you know the you kind of do some of those things in parallel you don't just wait I think we have the opportunity you know pending on um, exploration permitting pending on you know agreements with our communities and an understanding of of uh, exploration and you know what our communities would like to see with that, and um, you know the results of the bigger sort of uh, regional work, but we do have things that we can get to drill on this year that we have permits on. So right. all in all, you put it, you put that budget, you know, somewhere uh, it probably starts at five and can probably you know on success increase from there. Right. So you see, that's the, that, that that's already. 
a better story for me. You've got this massive project sitting, being advanced, fully funded to get through to, to feasibility. You're working yep. through an EIS with, with all the kind of social responsibility stuff you need to do the First Nations. That's a great story in itself. But you, you've got targets that are, you're, you're uh, permitted on and you're, you're, you're budgeted on. Because most companies I talk to are cash constrained. They know what they want to mm. do. They just can't do it. Yeah. And I just want yeah. to, I just wanted to get to that hardcore piece of information, which was we can keep drilling. We can make more discoveries. That's yeah. exciting whilst we're doing all of this stuff off on the side. But by the way, which makes us a top five company or top five producer in Canada. It's all good. Yeah. Uh, but th this makes it, a, you know, a step beyond. So that, that, that's, that's really good. That's really good. No, I, I think that's right. And I think the, the moment that you get to that, you demonstrate discovery. You demonstrate there are other, you know, there are other potentials in this district. And, you know, we're starting to have a lot of people looking at this district more broadly. Um, you know, Barracks picked up a huge land package to our southern flank. Um, you've obviously had Kinross with Great Bear and, you know, everything that's going to come on the back of that and in this district kind of pushing east. Um, you know, I think the the presence of another discovery really fundamentally changes this from uh, the perception that spring pole was always kind of what you see is what you get to now. This is a bona fide district scale exploration opportunity anchored by a super robust, very advanced stage project. Absolutely. Right. Let's, um, and I agree with you. You just got to, you just got to make that discovery. They're not easy to do, but if you make sure. one, it's a big, Big deal. Okay, so can we talk about the royalties? Can you give me some update on where where you are with with all of that? Because again, sure. that's another yeah, layer yeah. on top. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and that that hundred and twenty that we talk about of cash in our portfolio value doesn't include the value of our royalties, which we think is significant. So you know, twenty one royalties. Um, amongst those, the biggest ones would be the ones associated with our partnership portfolio. So royalty on pickle crow, which. If you follow Teco, our partners there are doing an amazing job. They've doubled the size of the resource, um, you know, and uh, it's really shaping up now as one of Canada's kind of premier, greater than two million ounce, uh, you know, high grade uh, high grade gold projects with just an unbelievable infrastructure around it. So that's going very well. Um, you know, we've got Hope Brook where they've got drills turning, first real drilling campaign there since you know the mid 2010s decade um and uh so we're anxious to see kind of what the results are there and goldman where obviously treasury has been advancing the goldman and goliath resource um but the most important thing about those three royalties is our partners combined last year did about a hundred and hundred and twenty thousand meters of drilling like that's a big program, right? If that was in one company, that you know, it'd be one of the bigger programs in Canada. So um, those resources are getting better. So we're not in a big hurry unless someone also recognizes that the resources are getting better. A great exposure to discovery. And they're also being advanced to the point where they're going from being uh, a royalty valued on a per ounce in the ground basis to a royalty valued on you know, a mine plan in a pre-feasibility study, which, you know, at Treasury, which we're going to see, um, you know, we're going to see that later this year. So I think that also helps with just becoming more advanced project. That, and then you're not under no pressure to sell those royalties or spin those royalties out. 
well, maybe maybe you don't, no, it's not a case of pressure for spinning out. That'd be uh, optionality for you. But yeah, the cash position and the equity position, you don't feel that you need to sell these royalties on because they're on good they're in good hands at the moment in the sense of the, yeah. the partners are good, right? Okay. Um, yeah, what, no, I think I think from 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 one perspective, if you could find a partner for whom these royalties would be a significant piece, mm. and you know, you then have a mark that you can show to people, you know, again, put it on the other side of our slide in our investor deck, which is here's here's kind of the undeniable market look through value of these things, which is kind of what we have with our with our project interests and our equity holdings. Mm. Then that's fine, you know, and if it's meaningful enough to that group, then you see the value increase as you get more of that drilling coming in and you see the resource upgrades and people are excited about the resource growth there. So I think with all of those, um, it you know, it, it's a pretty strategic portfolio and in the right hands, it could be worth, I think, a lot. And you'd also benefit then from the growth in value that it could be a part of a bigger portfolio. So something like that, I think, would make more sense rather than you know, selling it today for X amount of cash, because I just don't think you're going to get the, the real longer term fundamental value out of that. And we're not, you know, we're not in a big hurry for it. Right, I think that's the most important part of part of that um, equation. Um, so just um, so just on, um, I, th I think just one, one last question on on Springpole. You are obviously you've had some conversations at BMO. People understand that you're here. You're not in a position at the moment without without um, you know permits in in hand to have come start having conversations around understanding what debt you could get on this because. It's not something you can fix in right now until the feasibility study is in place, presumably, right? Is that true? No, you can't. You can't, but you can start having the discussions around the parameters and around sort of understanding what the capacities are in the project financing market right now. Yeah. So we've been talking with a few advisors about that. Um, you know, we haven't retained a project financing advisor, but I suspect that's something that we would do. As you move toward the feasibility getting done, because that that is a long lead time process as well. Um, you know, you need an independent engineer that kind of walks through the feasibility study with your team, but you kind of want that mostly finished. So you know, you're not necessarily uh, you know you kind of have the cake baked at the time that you bring them in to to you know see how they think it's going to taste. Hmm. So that that process, I think, kind of kicks off. You know, later this year gets serious in earnest in kind of the middle of, you know, beginning to middle of next year um, where, you know, you you also want to time it such that you can maintain a degree of momentum. So you really do sort of want to have the line of sight on the environmental assessment process and, and the finishing of the environmental assessment process, um, because everyone's going to need to see that, obviously, before you get to a point of of real commitment, but you can move a lot of people down the path in that way. So be that, you know, kind of consortiums of banks, as we've seen in a few uh, recent project financings, um, lots of interest from a number of the, of the other, you know, mining financing providers. There's not that many people who could write $500 million, you know, project financing checks, but they exist. And, you know, we uh, certainly make sure the project's on everyone's radar at an early stage. Um, and at the right time, people will roll up their sleeves and, and do the work on it. Like, I think it's not quite yet, but it's something that, you know, I think also just helps frame that that go forward strategy in the same way that talking with the industry helps frame that go forward strategy around 
you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a JV, maybe it's a partnership with an industry player that you finance this project on. I mean, you know, the, the quick math is your earnings usually happen at, you know, 0.7 to one times your nav. So if someone was going to earn into 50% of the project, you know, that's more than the equity we would require as part of our build. So then you're, you know, you're kind of in a potentially quasi carried interest position to get you to the finish line, which um, there would be a lot worse things than owning a, owning owning half of a 335,000 ounce a year producer, right? That that would have value that would be significantly in excess of where we're seeing in the market today. So lots of different, I think, optionality as we go down that path, but um, you just, you need to have some of the fundamental stuff in place. To yeah. Structured finance, my favorite bit of all of this. <laughs> and I got one last question. I was sent in by um, one of, I presume one of your shareholders, certainly one of your uh, fans. Um, it's, it's around the sort of total gold and silver in the ground for all of the projects. I mean, I, I guess it comes back to how, how many projects you got 43101 compliant um, reports on? Uh, well, the, the number that we report is a little bit in excess of 8 million ounces equivalent. Right. Um, we have 43101 reports on uh, Spring Pole. You know, there's one on Goldlund, Goliath, uh, Cameron, uh, our Quebec projects, which is actually three separate projects with three separate technical reports between Duparquet, um, Pitt, and Duquesne. Um, and we have 43101 on Hope Brook as well. So, you know, they're all underpinned by solid reports. Okay. I'll leave it there. Dan, good to see you. Good to catch up with you. Um, glad to hear um, it was busy down at BMO, down in Miami. Um, hope you got some sunshine down there. Um, <laughs> but now get your feet safely back on your desk, back at the office. So, uh, I, ho I, hope, I hope sunshine was the only thing I got while I was down there. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the state of Florida lives in a post-COVID world. So... Um, anyway, no, it's all good. And always, as always, a pleasure to chat. And we'll look forward to the next opportunity, hopefully maybe in person later this year. Good, man. Speak soon. All right. Cheers.